Uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Pastor Gary is away, so you are stuck with me, for better or for worse. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be focusing on verses 19 all the way through 30. And our specific focus this morning is uh, on a ministry that was started about a year ago at this church, um, and it's our small group ministry. So um, a year ago we started with about 40 to 50 people, and we put all those people into various small groups, uh, geographically arranged Um, And they met every other week uh, to discuss either a book or a a passage or a topic that possibly came up in a previous group time. Um, And and this ministry is aimed at more intimate fellowship among believers and then also mutual sanctification. uh, The idea that iron sharpens iron, as it says in the Word. Um, And so our normal schedule is to meet from September all the way through May and then take a break for the summer. So... This Sunday we are focusing on that concept and looking at a passage that um, teaches great truths that can apply to that ministry, Um, and then uh, inviting anyone and everyone to join once again for this upcoming uh, September through May cycle of our small group ministry. So there are sign-up sheets in the back, um, and we hope you see the value in that that, uh, ministry, and we hope you do join. So Philippians chapter 1. And I will start in the last part of verse 18. If you look at verse 18, it it seems to end further than it should. It looks like uh, most of your Bibles probably have a heading where it says to live as Christ or some other heading. And verse 19 starts a few words into that. Uh, So that's the remainder of verse 18. So we'll start there in the, the last part of verse 18 where Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Please join me in prayer as we approach this text. Oh, Father, it is good to be here this morning. Father, your word is beautiful. Your word is exactly what we need. We praise you and worship you for sending Christ. We praise you for working throughout all of history amongst 
the people of this earth. We thank you for inspiring people to write your words so that we can today read them, learn, and, and know you through your word. God, your word is precious, and I pray that you would reveal it to us here this morning, that you would please, Father, send your spirit to make your words effective in my heart, in the hearts of everyone who is here, Father, whether that be a work of sanctification or whether it be a work of salvation, may your work be done here this morning, Father, and and we praise you for this time. We thank you that we can read your word, and we pray that you would just guide us through this this time. In the name of Christ, amen. So Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. If you're familiar with your Bibles, especially your New Testaments, he is in large part what is uh, talked about in the book of Acts as he is converted in Acts chapter 8 and then he serves Christ faithfully as a missionary for the rest of that book. And he wrote the majority of our New Testament books that we have. Um, He wrote this book after visiting Philippi. Uh, he visited Philippi, Philippi in about 51 A.D. Um, if you go to Acts chapter 16, you'll see that story there. You might remember the, the meeting with Lydia out by the river, and she is converted. Um, he is then beaten. He is thrown into prison. And he and Silas, if I'm not mistaken, are in the low part of the prison singing praises to God at midnight. And the prison shakes apart and the Philippian jailer comes running in, ready to kill himself, thinking all the prisoners have escaped. And Paul and Silas share the gospel with him, and he and his family are also converted. So after that, that time there, and it was a fairly short time, uh, Paul leaps. And, and there is a church planted, there is a church started. We know at the very least that Lydia and the Philippian jailer would have been a part of that church. So about ten years later, Paul is uh, in prison again, this for a longer period of time. And he writes to the Philippians, and he writes this book to them. He will get out of prison, um, but he is currently in prison and not exactly certain about what is going to happen to him. So we'll work through this passage. Um, and I just want to uh, preach this passage as it is, um, and then I want to go through and do some application that will be specific um, to our small groups and that ministry. But let's just dive right into this passage. Paul starts off, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. And, and this is a continuation of a previous thought. So if we look back into the previous verses, he's talking about what has happened because he's in prison. And if you look back at verse 15, he says that some are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there is a dual reaction to Paul, Paul's imprisonment. And people are either out there trying to make things worse for him, or they are out there emboldened by Paul's boldness, and they are preaching the gospel faithfully with good motives. Paul's comment in verse 18 precedes our passage, and it's fascinating. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That is amazing. That is incredible selflessness. Paul doesn't care that some people are out there preaching with horrible motives, trying to make things worse for him. He is praising and rejoicing that the gospel is being preached. That's amazing. So he is in prison and he is rejoicing in that. And then he all, in verse, end of verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. And he's continuing in his rejoicing. And he says, I will rejoice, verse 19, for I know 
that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he is rejoicing and he is continuing to rejoice. Don't forget, this is a man in prison. This is a man in a prison that is not comfy. This is a man in a prison that is not a, a nice, easy place to be. Uh, some people today commit crimes so they can go to prison because it's better than the life they have. That is not the situation ever with Paul. Prison is not a place that is desirable. But he is a rejoicing man, and that has not stopped no matter what his circumstances are. And he's rejoicing because he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And, and deliverance doesn't necessarily mean what we might initially think it means. If you are in prison and you're talking about deliverance, you're most likely talking about being acquitted and getting out. And that would be Paul's hope. He is not guilty of anything uh, in, in terms of uh, sin. If the government has put him in prison, it is a wrongful thing for them to do. He is, does not deserve prison. And so he talks about deliverance, and that, in our minds, might think that he wants to get out. And certainly he does. He wants to get out so he can continue to minister, but deliverance is not just getting out of prison for him, as we'll see in a minute. And he tells the Philippians, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. He is absolutely confident that this will turn out for my deliverance. And he keeps going and he says in verse 20, As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. When we think about being ashamed, it's starting to get into this concept of what it means for Paul to continue faithfully in the midst of being in prison. You go back to Genesis 2.25, it says that Adam and Eve were created... And in that verse, it says they were both naked and they were not ashamed. There is a certain shame that comes with us being naked because we are sinners. And there is an exposure to nakedness that, that we do not like because there's things about us that we do not want people to see in their complete entirety. Adam and Eve were created without sin. They had nothing to be ashamed of. There was no wrong motive. There was no wrong word, no wrong action in their lives. They could be completely exposed and feel no shame. In Genesis 3, they sin. They fall. The serpent deceives Eve. The serpent causes her to eat the, the fruit. Adam is there with her, and he allows her to do this. And in verse 7, it says, They knew that they were naked. This is not a clothing comment. They knew that something had happened and that they were now sinners and there was something they needed to cover up. There, there was now a sense of shame that had not been there before and so they did what they figured was best and they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths as it says in Genesis 3, verse 7. Sin brings shame. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. He, he is eagerly expecting and hoping and, and looking forward to living for the Lord, living faithfully no matter His circumstances. He writes in Romans 1.16 that I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And he says, that's what I'm living for, and it is, I, am, I am bold, I am unashamed, I am going to preach this Gospel and therefore, 
God is, will be pleased with my life. And it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. And he says, I'm going to remain unashamed in this way. Paul's not a perfect man, but this is his goal. This is what he is aiming towards. And he, he continues, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, this is, this is rather than being ashamed, he's saying, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And when he says by life or by death, we start to see what he means by deliverance. And he'll talk about that a little bit more as we continue on. He makes a fascinating statement, though, that we, we want to pause on and challenge, uh, pause on and let challenge us. In the middle of verse 20, he says, Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. If you think about your daily routine, you think about the things you say, the things you do, the attitudes you have towards people, to think about now, as always, Christ being honored in my body. And this is, this is not just your physical body, but, but you, your, your being. Christ being honored in you now, as always. That is an incredible challenge to us. Again, Paul wasn't sinless. If you look over at Philippians 3, in verse 8, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul is counting on the righteousness of Christ. He is not giving out the idea that he is sinless, that he is always pleasing God absolutely perfectly, and therefore he has this, this righteousness of his own with which he can stand before God. He's counting on the righteousness of Christ, as he says in Philippians 3. But at the same time, if you go back to Philippians 1, this is what he's pursuing. This is his life. He wants God, he wants Christ to be honored in every single thing he does and says and thinks. That is his pursuit. And so he says, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Does that happen by the grace of God? Yes. Does that also happen because Paul is focusing on it and putting effort into it and striving after it? Yes. He's living consistently with a focus on honoring Christ in all things. So again, your normal actions towards those closest to you on a Sunday or a Monday, your interactions with your fellow believers at church, your interactions with your coworkers or, or fellow students, everybody's getting ready to go back to school, there's a lot of temptation and sin that just bombards youth, college-age young people at those institutions. Are we thinking about this and striving after this, that Christ will be honored in my body now as always? That no matter what is happening today, no matter what is happening tomorrow, tomorrow, no matter who I'm talking to, this will be my goal. Paul talked about deliverance 
And at the end of verse 20, he says, whether by life or by death. If Paul is going to live, he's going to be honoring Christ. If he's going to die, he's going to be with Christ and he's going to be perfect. But he said that this will turn out for my deliverance, so why is he talking about death? Because for Paul, it doesn't matter. If he is delivered out of prison and he is released and he is able to again walk this earth, he is going to honor Christ in his life. He is going to serve faithfully and he's going to be delivered from jail. If the Romans decide that his crime is egregious enough to be put to death, they will kill him and Paul will be free from this body. He will be free from sin. He will be delivered eternally and with his Lord forever. Absent from the body, he will be present with the Lord. And so he will be delivered either way. And so he is not shrinking back from either option. But he is rather seeking to honor his Lord no matter what comes down the path to him. Only as believers, only as Christians, if you are not a Christian here this morning, you cannot say this. Life or death. Because you are pursuing something in this life You are pursuing something for yourself, maybe for somebody else, but if you die, that pursuit will end. There is nothing in this life that that if you pursue it in a, a worldly way, there's nothing that will last beyond this world. Think about the richest person in America, in the world. When they die, they have exactly the same amount as the poorest person in this world. There's nothing they take with them. Kings used to be buried with gold and with money, and it sat there in the grave while their soul went on into eternity. And somebody dug it up thousands of years later and found it and had it because it didn't go anywhere. You can't take anything with you if you are pursuing something in this life, if you are pursuing a a relationship, some sort of success, an ideal in your mind that is so significant that you feel you have to have it, Ask yourself if it will still be there when you die. And if it won't, it's not worth your life. It's not worth pursuing with everything you have. Paul says he is seeking to honor his Lord. He is going to do that continuously in this life. And when he dies, all of that effort will have been worth it. And it will follow Him into eternity and He will be with the Lord and He will rejoice and He will praise His Savior and His King. Life, death, does not, should not change the goal that a Christian pursues. Can we say this? Can we say that the goals that I am pursuing today, tomorrow, are going to last into eternity? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, Paul says that if Christ isn't resurrected, we're wasting our lives. And it's again, this very similar concept. What are we pursuing? There's a a popular Christian songwriter who said, in, in light of that verse, that verse implies that our lives are built around Jesus being alive. If Christ isn't resurrected, we are wasting our lives. That implies that our lives are built around Jesus being alive. Does that make sense? There's another way to say it. If you take Christ out of your life, 
if He didn't rise from the dead, if He doesn't exist, if He is not your Savior, if you take Him out, what is left in your life? If there's a lot left, if there's a lot that you could still be doing just the way you are right now, if there's a lot that that wouldn't change in your interaction with people, if there's a lot that wouldn't change in your desires when you go to work on a, on a Monday, or when you come home to your family, or when you're engaging with with children or grandchildren, whatever it is, if there's a lot left, then your life is not built around Jesus being alive. And, and something needs to change in, in your life. Something needs to change in my life, if that is the case. Would your life be wasted if Jesus was still in the grave? If you are a believer, I hope you can say, yes, it would. Amen. If Jesus was in the grave, my, my life is just, I can't believe I'm doing what I'm doing. That should be what we say. That is what Paul is saying here. He is pursuing Christ. And he said it very succinctly in verse 21, probably the most famous, definitely the most famous verse in this passage we read, possibly in the entire book of Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or it says in the original, for to me, to live, Christ, to die, gain. To live, Christ. That's That's it. This is Paul's summary, short, quick, you can memorize it easily statement, to live Christ. He's consumed with Christ. The leading role in his life is not himself. It is not somebody else. It is Christ. Galatians 2.21, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's a longer version of saying what He's saying here. To live Christ. This is what He is going to do if He continues to live on this earth. Christ. Can we finish that statement with something else? Can I say, my life is something other than Christ? Can I say my life is my job? Can I say my life is the youth group? Youth group is good. It better not be my life. Can can I say my life is my wife or our child? Both incredible blessings. But not worthy of replacing Christ. To live Christ. So if there's anything else that falls in that blank for you, as as you look at your marriage, as you look at your life as a single person, as you look at your, your parenting, or the way you relate to your parents, if you look at your work, your play, your internet, your friends, if there is something else that finishes that sentence, this is a call to repent. Because this is not Paul's statement for himself. This is not Paul being Paul, and he's an apostle, so he has to be this way, and I'm just a regular Christian. This is a Christian statement for anyone who is a believer, to live Christ. And if that does not finish, if, if Christ does not finish our sentence, repentance is the next thing we need to do. And, and let's be honest, this is not, if you're a believer, this is most likely not going to be an all or nothing thing. There are areas of your life where you are saying yes, to live 
in this area for me is Christ. And in this other area, it's, it's something else and, and, and I need to repent. But there's going to be those areas where we are more easily faithful than others. And so it's a matter of finding those places where Christ is not reigning and repenting in those areas and continuing on and continuing to do that as we see more things in our lives where Christ needs to be king more fully. Jesus Christ is the only lead role, should be the only lead role in our lives. And until we recognize that, we will not flourish as believers. That is a quote from Brian Payne. He's a pastor of a church in Kentucky. Only because Paul says to live as Christ can he say the next thing. You, you cannot say death is gain unless you say life is Christ. And so Paul says it to die is gain. Because like we said before, absent from the body for the believer is present with the Lord. Death is simply the entrance to heaven to the fullness of God, to shedding every remnant of sin that clings so closely. And so Paul says to die is gain. He is not a, he's not suicidal. He's not an escapist trying to get out of this life. But he recognizes the beauty of what's coming. He recognizes that, that death no longer has fear that, that, that can grip him. Death no longer holds him in a way that causes him to be frightened of it, he can simply say, death is going to be gain. He continues on, he says in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, and he expects to, this means fruitful labor for me. Why is it fruitful labor? Because Paul's life is Christ. And so if he remains in this life, he is going to serve the Lord in a fruitful, faithful way. And he says at the end of verse 22, Yet what shall I choose? Yet what shall I choose? I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Again, Paul is not suicidal. He is reflecting on his desires. He is reflecting on what is tugging at his heart the most. There's this heavenly pull that just pulls on his heart. That's where he longs to be. But he knows that God has given him a ministry and that he is needed on this earth. Let me just say that death, or rather suicide, ought to never, ever if you are struggling with this, listen up. Death or suicide ought to never be your chosen escape from this world. That is not an option. It is not an option that honors God. It is not an option that pleases Christ. It is not gain if Christ is not your life. And if Christ is your life, there is no nothing in this world that can push you to the point of such hopelessness that something like suicide is an option. Christ is our joy. Christ is our hope. And He will be that through anything this life brings at us. Remember where Paul was. 
Paul is persecuted. Paul is a beaten man. Paul is, a, is somebody who regularly suffered for the sake of Christ. And his response was joy and rejoicing. And that is possible for every Christian. So if your life is in Christ, suicide is never an option. If you are not a believer, death is not gain. It will not bring something better. It will not be better than this world. If you're not a believer and you decide to end your life, you will wake up and mourn that decision for the rest of eternity. Because hell will make this life look like a happy playground. If you are struggling with this, come talk to me. Come talk to to somebody here who is a mature believer. Please. There are answers for those hard questions. But the answer is never suicide. And it's not what Paul is advocating here. All he is saying is, I want to be home. I want to be with my God. I want to be with my Lord. I love Christ so much that I want to be with Him in eternity. And so, so he's anticipating that. He's looking forward to that. And he's doing it in such a way that it's almost disappointing for him to stay here. Because Christ is that good. And being with Him is that good. But Paul recognizes the need for Him to be here. He recognizes that His work on earth is good. It is necessary. And so he says in verse 25, convinced of this, convinced that He needs to still be here, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul wants to be with Christ. He wants to see Him face to face instead of seeing dimly like he does now. But he is convinced that he will remain. He is convinced that his ministry is necessary for the Philippians, that their progress, their joy in the faith is something that he can still contribute to. And, and God wants him here on earth to continue to do that. And indeed, that, that was the case. Paul was released from this prison and he did serve more before he was imprisoned again and ultimately executed. But Paul is convinced that he will remain. And so he says, my remaining is for your progress and your joy in the faith. And we'll come back to this a little bit later, but this is what Christ being honored in Paul's life practically looks like. This is what it means for him to have fruitful labor, for him to say to live is Christ. It means he writes to churches, he goes to churches, he preaches the gospel in places where it has not been preached to plant churches. It means that he encourages the saints and encourages them in their joy and in their progress. This was not necessarily happy, easy. It was joyful, but it wasn't always happy, easy labor for Paul. If you think about some of the letters he wrote, there are very few letters. I'm not sure there's any where he just encourages and praises a church for their progress and for their faithfulness. I think in just about every letter, I haven't done an exhaustive study, but I think in about every letter there's something that is, that is going wrong in the church. The classic example is 1 Corinthians, where it seems like all he did was just exhort and chastise and, and tell them where they needed to correct things. This was, this was difficult. If you think about issues in churches, they're not easy. And it, it's, it's frustrating at times to see believers do the things that we all do. 
things that I myself do. So this was not easy labor for Paul, but to live is Christ. And in that he had joy, and so his labor was fruitful, and it was for the people that he ministered to. So he says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We'll pause there. Paul early on said he was convinced that he would remain. There's no guarantee. I don't think Paul had a special revelation from God as to what was going to happen. He was convinced that this is what was going to happen. But he says here in verse 27, whether I come and see you again or I'm absent, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He doesn't know the future. He doesn't know whether he's going to see these people again. And he says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I come to you or not. It doesn't matter whether we get to reunite or I get to encourage you in person. He says, live worthy of the gospel no matter what happens. What does the gospel say about our worthiness? The gospel says we are not worthy of the gospel. That that is why it is the gospel of grace. The very basic reality of the gospel is that you and I are not worthy of of what we are given in the gospel. Paul's not saying make yourself worthy of the gospel, for the gospel itself says you're not worthy. We are, in, in heart, in mind, in motive, sinners. At youth camp this year, we did Genesis uh, from start to finish for the entire week. And you get one of the most condemning statements of humanity in Genesis chapter 6 when the Lord looks down and sees mankind right before the flood. And it says that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Did you know that your heart has thoughts and those thoughts have intent? I never go that deep when I think about my, my mind and my heart, but the scripture says that every every Intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. The scripture is leaving no little opening, no little gap where you can slip in a good work or you can slip in a, a nice thought or some sort of kindness that we often try to do with ourselves, with other people. The scripture just covers every base and says, Nope, you're sinners. Start to finish, bottom to top. As deep as you can go, all the way down, you are sinful. And so God judges the world in a flood, and you think things were fixed. And then God gives his promised rainbow in the clouds to say that he will never do this again. And you might say to yourself, things are better. And God says, I will never do this again, even though man is evil from birth. Nothing's changed. All that God has done is said, I won't do this again. But but humanity has not changed. The gospel starts with the holiness of God and it comes second to our sinfulness. And, And the vast difference between those two things should highlight your vast need. Because when God reveals Himself as holy, as perfect, as just, as righteous, 
A, a God who will not wink at sin. A God who will not overlook your wicked heart. And, and, and I'll be honest, I know most of you. And, and a lot of you I know aren't saved, and I know you're decent people in this world. God will not overlook your wicked heart. He will not. You have no chance of standing before Him and saying, I went to youth group, I was at that church quite a bit, and they liked me, and I really kind of fit in. There is no gap in your wickedness that allows you to slip in a good work that is pleasing to God. You cannot come before God and somehow excuse or get rid of or erase your sinfulness. And so the holiness of God, which must judge sin, comes to a sinner, every single one of us, and he ought to condemn, judge, punish. This is why hell makes sense. This is why hell is a right thing, as horrible as it is. Nobody wants to say that when somebody dies, they go to hell. All you have to do in this world to be a good person is die. Have you ever noticed that? Every person in a funeral home was a good person. And even if you knew they were a horrible person, nobody wants to say it. But that is our reality. And God will not overlook it because He's holy and He's perfect. And He will look at that sinner and say, you deserve, this is the right thing for me to send you to hell. The Gospel says we are not worthy. The Gospel doesn't stop there. Can we, can we praise the Lord for that this morning? The Gospel does not stop there. It does not end with the holiness of God and our sinfulness, but it ends with a God who lovingly planned to send His perfect Holy Son into the world to take the wrath that sinners deserved. That is the beauty of the Gospel. That is what changed Paul's life. That is why Paul rejoices no matter what. That is why Paul looks forward to being with his Lord because that's all that consumes him. And so he says, live a life worthy of this gospel. You're not worthy of it, but you have been given it. You have been given redemption and salvation in Christ. Live a life worthy of that. Let that change you completely and fully from the inside out. This is the the beauty of the Gospel grabbing a hold of your heart and causing you to do everything differently than you used to. You have been made worthy. We read earlier about from Romans 12. That entire chapter is, is Paul doing the exact same thing that he's saying here. He's saying, you've been changed. You've been transformed. You've been saved, redeemed, washed, cleansed. Do things differently now. Do things very differently. Live a life that is worthy of the Gospel. If your life is unaffected, if you say you're a Christian here today and your life is unaffected by the Gospel, you are not a Christian. This is exactly what happens. You are, when God saves a person, when He changes your heart, things change. There's never the, I prayed once, I, I repented once. Nothing has changed in my life, but I really like God. I love God. 
That is not the gospel that produces change. There are many, Jesus says, there are many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that? And he will say, I never knew you. Because their hearts were never grabbed by the gospel and their lives were never changed in an authentic way. If your life is unaffected by the gospel, you're practical every day, this is what I do because of Christ, if those things aren't there, your heart has not been changed by the gospel. We're not advocating perfectionism. My sin is ever before me, especially as I read a passage like this and hear what what Paul is doing with his life and how he's consistently living for the Lord. It is convicting. But I see things in my life that are different because of the gospel. And that must be there. There's still that battle that rages in us where the sinful flesh pulls one way and, and the spirit pulls the other way. And we need to fight with the spirit against our sinful flesh. But if things aren't different, if that fight isn't there, you haven't been changed by the gospel and you need to repent because there, there is a day for salvation. It is today and God is gracious because He has not stopped at His holiness and your sinfulness. He has rather sent a Savior. And so Paul encourages the Philippians, do things, actively pursue doing things in light of the gospel. Because we have a part in this. God changes our hearts and we work to continually change what we do and how we think and how we feel so that we can say with Paul to live Christ. And he tells the Philippians to do a few specific things so that that if he hears of them, he hears that they are In verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And so he encourages them, I think in a way specific to their situation, to be tenacious and holding firm to the truth, standing firm in one mind. Or sorry, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, being unified in their action. Division is something they struggled with in this church, and so he encourages them to be unified and to strive side by side with a unity of action with one another, not frightened by your opponents. In all likelihood, maybe God will grant us the grace of persecution. I do mean that. I don't seek out persecution. I don't pray for it. Maybe I should if I was more mature. That's a different discussion. But Paul probably suffered more than we will. Maybe not. There, there is a great grace to persecution. God works wonderfully through it. Um, and maybe he will see fit to do that amongst us in this country. If things continue as they are, we will not suffer as much as Paul did. Paul says that they, the Philippians, and we also should not be frightened in anything by your opponents. If anybody was going to be frightened by an opponent, it it, it could have been Paul. Romans, Jews, everybody was coming after him. Sometimes people would infiltrate a church and start to turn the church against him. 
You see that in, in Galatians where Paul is to write them and say, well, what are you doing? How are you turning from the gospel I preached to you? I, I, I gave you everything. How are you turning so quickly? He had opponents nonstop. But he knows there is a sovereign Lord who loves him. There is, if you are a believer, the sovereign Lord of the universe loves you. And so you can, with Paul, live completely fearless of any opponent. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, fiery furnace. They stand before the king of Babylon, probably the most powerful man in the world at that time, humanly speaking. And you just listen to their responses as this huge fire is burning right next to them. Think about a situation where you might be afraid. It's probably less than that. They are standing before a man who can simply say, kill them, and soldiers will do it. And they see their death right there, and they stand before this king and say, you can play the song again, but we're not going to bow. We're just not going to. And if God doesn't rescue us, that's okay too. Because we're serving him no matter what you do to us. Talk about fierceness. That is what God can do. Because he is a sovereign, holy, perfect God who loves his people. And everything that comes to us, everything that comes to us comes through his good hands. God has blessed me mightily. Some of you have suffered in this life a lot more than I have. And so I, in some sense, it's easy for me to say this. And, in some, and, and for some, it might be very hard to hear this. But the truth doesn't change. It doesn't. Our, our loving, sovereign God will not, does not, ever give us a reason to fear this world. And He does not change no matter what happens to us in this world. Paul finishes out with verse 20, and he's, or sorry, verse 29. He says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> this suffering may come. Sinners hate the Gospel. Sinners hate Christians. We're seeing that more and more in our culture. It's very clear in other countries. In all likelihood, it will become more clear and more overt in this country. God may grant us to suffer for His sake. And if He does, we have to remember that. That He granted it to us. And so we can endure. Because it is not out of his control. It's something that he has graciously given. As we finish up this morning with some application, I want to look back through this passage. This this is an excellent passage. Um, I was really blessed, and I've used some of his quotes, some of his material, by um, Pastor Brian Payne out of Kentucky. That's where Alex and Sarah Tibbet go to church. Many of you know them. Um, Brian Payne was at our youth camp, I believe, two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he's a great man, and he's preaching through Philippians right now, and he um, is a far better preacher and a far smarter preacher than I. So if you want to go onto their church's website and listen to his in-depth study of the book of Philippians, it's very, very good. 
They're there at uh, Fisherville Baptist in Louisville, Kentucky. But I want to work back through this passage very briefly and just pull out some application um, and then look specifically at what that means for church body life and then use that as an encouragement towards small groups. Um, So our, our small group ministry is a ministry that we encourage all to participate in. We know that sometimes that can't happen, and we understand that. Um, It is not a necessary, you must do this if you're a part of the church type of ministry. No ministry should be that. We are serving Christ in different ways and different capacities. We can't always be all doing one ministry. But this is a ministry we encourage because, biblically, we see... The, the, the Word of God calling us to body life. And we think that small groups are an effective way of facilitating that body life. So back to verse 19. Paul says that I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Prayer for one another is an essential function of the church. It has been an essential function of believers throughout the centuries. Moses, multiple times for the people of Israel, prays to God, and God relents from disaster. Right? This is Moses' effectual prayer. Right? God, God using this to train Moses, to work in Moses, to reveal things to Moses. But God also using Moses' prayer to work His perfect, sovereign will. And, and I'm not going to be able to fully explain how this happens, but your prayers are part of God's sovereignty and His work in others' lives. God will do exactly what He plans to do, and He will not do it unless you pray. And I won't be able to put those two perfectly together for you. God is perfectly sovereign. He calls His people to pray, and we are to pray for one another. And that is one of the ways He sovereignly works. So your prayers do matter for each other. They they matter to Paul. He says, through your prayers and the work of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He doesn't just say that God is going to rescue me. Don't worry about praying. It doesn't matter what you pray. It doesn't matter if you do pray. He says, no. Your prayers and the work of God are what is going to bring about my deliverance. James 5.16 very famously says this as well. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We have to pray for one another. The best way to pray for one another is to know each other. To be in close communion with each other. And you can do that... On a Sunday, you can do that meeting with each other throughout the week. We, we highly encourage you to do that through the avenue of a small group because it's a great way to sit down every couple of weeks with the same group of people and really get to know them. And so you, you realize that your general prayers can start to become a lot more specific for those people, and God is honored in that. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul's not perfect. He is not Christ. But in the ways that he is faithful to Christ, he says, do those things. As we get to know each other, as we get together, hopefully in a a small group, as we engage with each other more, there's going to be more mature and less mature believers when that happens. 
And there are ways that I can get to know you, see how you love Christ, see how you engage at, at your job on a daily basis with your spouse, with, with your kids, with whatever it may be. I can see that and I can learn something. I can see Christ in you and then I can go imitate that. And that is a good thing. That is something we ought to be doing. If you kind of step back and, and you realize that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians and he tells them to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, he's teaching them. He, he's showing them his life. He, he's exposing himself to them in a way that they can learn and follow and grow. He, he's basically saying to them, this is me. This is me following Christ, honoring Christ. And just like we are doing... They got this letter and said, we now know better how to follow Christ. And that is something that can happen, should happen, will happen, as we more closely get to know each other. A solo Christian is not a biblical possibility. There, There is no one in the scripture that is alone. On their own, just them and God. God has brought His people into communion, calls them His uh, bride, and presents them to His Son. And there is not going to be the bride of Christ and then these three people over here that did it on their own. We are all members of that body. We are all together. So if, if you are a Christian that consistently refuses to be a part of the body of Christ. You are either in sin or you are not saved. And that is a need, there's a need for repentance because the Christian life is a body life. Paul exemplifies this same concept in verse 24. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul basically says, you need me. And he's not being arrogant, he's not being proud. But he's saying, this is the ministry God has given me and you need it. You need me, another person. That's the reality of the body of Christ. He says later on, I'm here for your progress and for your joy. And we can be that one to another and we ought to be. Again, it's hard to do if you don't know each other well. There's people in here that I can help in their walk in the Lord. There's people in here that I can spur on to love and good works and help their joy. And and very simply, it's most easily my wife and the youth group. Because I spend the most time with them. I know them the best. And that's not a coincidence. That is exactly how it works. And so as we look to do this with one another, we ought to be doing it in close relationship with one another, with relationship that is getting ever closer. We can encourage each other to walk in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We can challenge each other when we see a fellow brother or sister stumbling and not doing that. 
before I was married, I sinned a lot. I still sin a lot. But before I was married, I sinned a lot, and there's a, a lot of it I just didn't notice. Because there was nobody in my life saying, um, that was really selfish. Um, no, you, it's not that you didn't hear me. You weren't listening. You didn't care enough to lis- listen. Or, yes, our anniversary was two weeks ago. Um, a little, little more love and you would have remembered it, right? Um, I haven't forgot the anniversary yet, so just an example. <laughs> it might happen. But that, that's just the reality. That there are things that we can see in each other when we're closer to each other. At the very end of this, and lastly, Paul says it may be granted to you to suffer. And I do believe that primarily that means external suffering from the world. As I was listening to the sermons that Pastor Brian Payne preached on this topic, he brought up a fascinating point that I think is very apt and just good to to mention. Again, I don't think this is the primary meaning Paul has in mind, but Christ, God, has granted to us for the sake of Christ that we should not only believe in Him but suffer for His sake. And maybe sometimes we we are churchless or we are not connected with a church. And by the way, you can come to church and still be churchless. Right? Then you're just a spectator. Okay? If I go to a New England Patriots football game this fall, I am not part of the team. Right? I am, an, I am an attender at the game. I can call myself a fan. I am not on the field competing with those other people. You can be a church attender and still not be part of the church. You, you can just come and say, that was good, that was helpful. I'm now going to go back home and live my own life. Those helpful principles will help me, but I am not going to connect deeply with that church. So, if that is where you are, this is for you as well as this for all of us because we can do this. Can we be churchless or uninvolved because it's going to cause suffering in the church? And could that be a small part of what God grants us as believers to suffer in the church? Again, I don't think that's the primary thing that Paul is talking about, but it's a great point to think about. Do we sometimes pull back, avoid, because it might hurt, because things might not go well, because it's not gone well in the past? And and honestly, I've been blessed in churches. I I do not have some of the baggage and hurt and pain that some of you do. And so I, I do not want to say this flippantly. Because that suffering is real and it's hard. And, and you should not always just tough it out. And I'm not suggesting that at all. Sometimes it is right and necessary to come to the conclusion that I, this, I should not be at this church. This church is not loving the Lord. This church is not following the Lord. But sometimes we do this where we avoid suffering by simply not being involved, not putting ourselves out there. And the challenge when we feel that, when we do that, is that God has granted to us a life with other sinners, and part of that is going to involve suffering. 
And we should not pull back from that. Because God has granted suffering for our good, for our growth. I did not get married because it was going to be perfect. And if you watch Hollywood movies, you think it's going to be, and it's just not. And, and I love my wife, and we have a good marriage. We're sinners. We're sinners. And every one of you knows that you are too, and your relationships suffer because of it. And there is suffering in every relationship you have, small or great, because you're a sinner, and because the other person is a sinner. It's never all their fault. And it's not always all your fault. It's just the reality of life in this world. And we ought not to pull back from that because that is what God is using very often. That is exactly what He is using to sanctify us, to grow us, to change us. And so to be churchless for that reason is to not follow what the Scripture teaches, what Paul is saying here. It's not living for Christ. It's depriving the church of your gifts. It's, it's depriving yourself of sanctification. And it's not following the example of our Lord. How many perfect disciples did Jesus pick? How many headaches did they cause Him? And He picked every one of them to be in close proximity to Him for three years. One of them betrayed Him And wasn't even a believer. And he still lived closely with Judas for three years. It's the example of our Lord to not pull back from those kinds of relationships. And it's certainly applicable to here in the body. When we we have that foundation of love for the Lord and love for each other, and so we ought to pursue that and live it out even if it causes pain along the way. And again, our small group ministry is a way to do that. These things ought to be done by all of us in this church, collectively as a body, whether or not we have this ministry. But but the goals of the group are to increase the opportunity to apply these truths, to increase intimacy in biblical body life. So that is our hope for that ministry, and that is our encouragement as we look at this passage this morning, that we might all do this more Hopefully in small groups. If, if you would like to, please sign up on one of the two sheets in the back. If not, this still applies to us. This is still the Word of God calling us to live for Christ. So let's take it to heart and let's praise the Lord for the Gospel and then go live it out in a way that is worthy of that Gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we praise you this morning.